So Psalm 51, I, a lot of you will know the background, but I'm going to cover it again anyway, just in case there's somebody who's new to this psalm. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David written at a time of repentance, and he needed to repent. It was, a, it was the lowest point, I would say, in his life. And if you've read the life of David, you know that there's some, there's some pretty serious low points. Uh, there are times where it was caused by the sin of other people. You have uh, the period in his life where Saul, who had been his best friend's father and somebody he looked up to, uh, Saul had had pretty much what seems like a spiritual, nervous, and and just altogether all around breakdown. Uh, he seems to have struggled with things that people like to talk about nowadays, like narcissism and egotism and pride and arrogance, and that all bred insecurity. And because of his insecurity, Saul sinned against God, consulted a medium and all of this. His kingdom was taken away and God said, David's going to be the king. And that created a low point in his life. He chases, Saul does, chases David around wanting to kill him. Gets very close. David had a lot of run-ins with Philistines. You, of course, remember the most famous we talk about is Goliath. That was not his most challenging day. That day went relatively well. There were times where the Philistines uh, chased him around and tried to kill him as well. There were others who tried to kill him. There were relatives who tried to kill him. He really had a hard life. At one point, it got so bad that he sat on the side of the road purposefully drooling. I don't know what I was about. Drooving? I don't know what that's a word. If it is, I'm sorry. I don't know what it means. Uh, But drooling all over his beard because that was a sign of being crazy. And so he did that on purpose so that they would ignore him. So he basically looks like this, this out-of-his-mind, uh, down-and-out guy on the side of the road so that they would leave him alone and not suspect that he was King David. It got that bad in his life. But nothing was as bad as the day that the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, David, God knows what you've done. I know what you've done. And you know what you've done. And he talks to David about the need to go to the Lord and to repent. Well, repent of what? That's a story that a lot of you know. He had had an affair with a woman who was not his wife. Of course, David was already married, so he committed adultery with Bathsheba. It would now be, we would consider this part of the Me Too thing, because Bathsheba, we have no idea... Uh, what her attitude was in this, whether she went willingly or unwillingly, but she went at the behest of a king's request, which she did not have the right to turn down. Okay, It's not a sweet love affair. It was adultery. It's not uh, just a weak moment. It was the use of his power and prestige and place to intimidate a woman to come up to his home so that he could have sex with her, and that's what he did. Then to cover it up, he murders her husband and doesn't even have the courage to be, to be a completely courageous sinner and go in and do it himself. He has his military do it by secretly pushing him to the most dangerous part of the front lines. Uriah, her husband, was a man who had pledged his life and loyalty to David and the kingdom, and to David especially, as one of his mighty men. This was not just any soldier that he betrayed and murdered and had an affair with his wife. He was one of his closest guards. And he has him pushed to the front of the line 
and killed. It was murder. Another soldier from the other side killed him. But it was murder at his order. You can just imagine being David, a man who it said was a man after God's own heart, meaning he was somebody who wanted to be faithful, who wanted to be loyal to the Lord, to realize not only that you've done what you've done, that moment where all of a sudden you, like uh, Lady Macbeth, are trying to clean your hands and can't, to realize what you've done and then to realize... And this guy standing in front of me, this man of God, Nathan, knows. We can lie to ourselves and think that, well, I know God knows, but this didn't hurt anybody. (laughs) David couldn't say that. This didn't hurt anybody or this doesn't affect everybody else or this isn't a public problem, so I'm not going to take it public. Whatever. We can lie to ourselves and say, what I did was, you know, between me and God. And God has grace and forgiveness and, 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 and it's all fine. It's all fine. And we can lie to ourselves and say that at times when it's not all fine. And I think David had done that. I think he thought that because... The husband was gone. Nobody, it, it looked like he was killing battle. It looked like he was a hero. You ever wonder if David attended a hero's welcome ceremony when the body came home? How did he get through that day? We don't have that in Scripture. But how did he read the list of soldiers to honor? How did he do that? How did he attend the memorial as we would do and as they would have done? to honor this person that he knows died because of him. But somehow he told himself, well, at least it's, it's over. It's over. He's gone. Only a few of my guards here at the, at the palace know it's over. But it wasn't over. So Nathan goes to David and calls him to repentance. And it takes a little while. He has to tell him a story about a guy who has a hundred sheep and he steals this one sheep that this one farmer has. He says, you know, this man had everything and he took from the one who had only this. David goes, oh, I'd string him up. And Nathan says, would you now? Because, brother, that's you. And it finally gets in. And when it gets in, he writes this psalm. Okay? So let's read what David felt, what he thought, and what he prayed when it finally hit home. What have I done? Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your steadfast love, according to Your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach the transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. And you would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and in whole burnt offerings. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. To say this is something that comes deeply from his heart, it's, it's kind of an understatement, isn't it? You can feel in his words just the, the intensity all the way, he says, to, the, to his broken, crushed bones, what he feels. And we have all been there at some point in our life. And if we haven't, well, hold on because it's coming. At some point, we all find ourselves thrown before God Pleading for His mercy. Pleading for a right judgment through mercy and through the lens of His love and the filter of His love and the sacrifice of Jesus. Because it's the only way. And David realizes this in this moment. That there was no other way to make things right. He can't undo the adultery. He can't undo a murder or the lying and the cover-up. He can't. So what should he do? He has no plea but for the mercy of God. And so that's what he does. And we're going to look at this. There's several sections in this psalm and attitudes he had. And that's what I want to look at. So first is his plea. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And I've, I've italicized and bolded, but it might be hard to tell. It seems like it's a little dim today. Um, but his first thing, and let me back up. We're looking at verbs today. Y'all know how I like to say that Proverbs does tell a story, but it's not today. Pronouns tell a story. Verbs do as well, and they give depth to it. I want to pay real close attention to the verbs he uses and the verb phrases he uses. It's really fascinating. And then you start to see what's going on in his heart. Okay? So first he says to the Lord, a call to action to God, not himself. He starts with God. Because the only one who can make it right is who? God. Have mercy on me, O God. Well, how? According to your steadfast love. God has a lot of qualities. Love is His greatest, but it's not His only. God is also holy. He is righteous. He is pure. He is just. And the justice of God would be paying attention fiercely to the grave of a man who was wronged. To the marriage of a man and a woman that was broken. To the innocent, we suppose, guards who were made guilty by following an order of a corrupted king. God's justice can't just ignore those things. So David doesn't appeal yet to justice. He will, but not yet. His first appeal is 
God, I know you, your love never ends. Your love is never over. And your love doesn't stop. Please, God, look at me right now through your love. Have mercy on me, O oh God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The only one who can do it. David is Lady Macbeth at this moment. There is no washing off that stain except by the mercy of God. And we can look back through time and know through the giving of His Son on the cross. Blot out my transgressions. He's the only one that can. He appeals to love and mercy because He knows they're real. What Satan will do is to try and get us in these kinds of moments to only see one part of God. And some of us try to, to, he gets us to only see this, the love and the mercy, and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. God just loves me anyway. He just, he just wants me to be happy. He wants you to be holy. He said, be holy as I am holy, not be happy as I am happy. But we focus on one thing. We usually focus on the one thing that will cause us not to need to repent, we think. And that everything's just fine. David appeals first to love because I think he knows this is the only hope I've got. That something in there in the love of God will on those scales. He can't earn a, uh, an equaled out scale. But that something will and his appeal is God. Put your love on the scale. He doesn't say ignore it. He doesn't say just pretend it didn't happen. He says, love me. Show me mercy, God. And please, cleanse what's on this side. Cleanse it. And I think he knows ultimately what the cost of that cleansing is. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's the only way forward when we find out just how deep our sins can be and how broken we really are is God cleanses. Verbs are important for this reason. Look at every single one of these. Do you know what all of them are? They're all, as I said, a call to action on God's part and passive on our own because there is no way we can do any of this on our own. You don't fix these things on your own. It doesn't matter what your sin is. It doesn't have to be a murder conspiracy and an adultery and all of those things. No matter what it is that is, would be on your scales, the only way for that to be weighed out by love and mercy is through the action of God and to call on the Lord. That's why Romans 10 says that all who call on the Lord will be saved. When you don't, you don't have it in you. There's nothing you can do to make that better. That was his plea. Now, in all of this, he doesn't pretend that it wasn't a problem. That's kind of what our culture is at right now. We see this every single day where what we do is we look at the things that we know are unholy, the things we know that aren't right within ourselves, not talking about looking at other people, but within ourselves. We look at what isn't right and we start to try and just justify it. Well, it, it makes me happier. Well, you know, I don't even know if that's wrong anymore. And 
It is. Whatever. I don't even know what the it is you're thinking of, but it is. If it was sin, it's sin. If it was sin then, it's sin now. We have to own that. There's no way forward till you own it. This is where the pronouns come in. Notice he kept saying, my sins, my transgressions. He didn't try and say, my mistakes. Or he didn't, and he didn't try to say, well, you know, it was that woman. Like Adam did in the garden, right? It was that woman that you gave me. He didn't say, well, Lord, I was just up on the porch and I know that I was, you know, looking out there, but I was just checking to see if it looked like anybody's roof had a leak and I found a woman in a tub. It wasn't my fault, Lord. What was she doing in the tub? Richard Rogers used to always say, listen, you cannot stop a bird flying over your head. That's David noticing her. You can't stop a bird flying over your head, but you don't have to stand there and let it make a nest. David was tempted in what he saw, but David was guilty in that he stayed and kept watching and then acted on it. Okay? But he owns that. This is why we're called to be a confessing people. This is why in the book of James chapter 5, he says, confess your sins one to another. Why? Because we need to acknowledge who we are and what we've done. We need to get things off our chest because we need to own it and say, yeah, that was me. I did that. And appeal to the love and the mercy and the grace of God. He says, I know my transgressions. And against you, you only, have I sinned. He doesn't say, well, it wasn't really that wrong. You know, their marriage wasn't going real well. And, and you know, da 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 He doesn't make no excuses. God, I sinned and I sinned against you. It's a weird phrase. I've always found this to be a weird phrase. Uh, against you and you only. It's in verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Every time I read that to this day, even knowing what I know, I look at that and I go, yeah, I don't think so, David. You did not just sin against God. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah the most. You sinned against your wife. You sinned against your own family. You sinned against your parents. You've embarrassed them all. You sinned against your people because you pledged to be a man of God as their king. So I read this phrase, and I just always have a little bit of, eh, you sure about that, David? But here's what I think he's saying. At the, I don't like this phrase, but we use it anyway. At the end of the day, you have the fact that all these other people are hurt by his sin. He needs to own that too. He needs to acknowledge that too. He needs to make that right as much as he can. And let me tell you, God gives him a high price for making that right. And this is a tremendous moment of grace, but grace doesn't mean no consequences. It means that you still will spend eternity with God. But sometimes there's still consequences. God showing you grace doesn't mean you don't have to still go to jail. Although David doesn't because he's like American presidents. And so he doesn't. But he should have. Actually, he was supposed to be stoned. At this point, he was supposed to be executed. This was this was not a life sentence. This was capital punishment. When uh, when it's all said and done, he sinned against all those people. Yes, he's hurt people and let the terrible wake 
of destruction in its path. There is yet another life that it will cost one of his children because of this. It's bad. It's bad. But in the end, what he's saying is, it is the Spirit of God, it is the heart and the nature of God and His holiness that I have most offended. People can like me or not like me. People can forgive me or not forgive me. People can overlook sin and pretend it's not. And none of that changes the one judgment that matters. And this is what he's getting at. God, I sinned against you. We have sinned against you. And you only. The one who will judge. The one who can forgive when our heart seeks it is the one that matters the most. And he's just putting God on such a high pedestal and saying, God, in the end, you're the one whose judgment of me matters above all else. And I've sinned against you, God. And he confesses that and lays it before him and, and continues to plea for forgiveness. There's another phrase in here that, that also I need to look at. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. One of the things you have to remember about the Psalms is that sometimes there are statements in the Psalms that are not meant to be doctrinal statements. Sometimes people will take this and say, See, we're born already lost and sinful. And that's not what he's getting at. David is expressing his heart. Sometimes David expresses his heart in the Psalms with things that are the, they are true in that they are what he felt. The Spirit has them recorded for us so that we know this is what David thought, this is what David felt. But just as it, he wasn't right in feeling that he should have Bathsheba, he's also wrong that he was born in iniquity. He wasn't. He was born an innocent child just like everybody else. The sins that we commit are the sins that are sins. Does that make sense? Sin is a willful act. It's something that we do knowing better, or sometimes we don't yet know better, but we should have, but we do them on purpose. If I am to lose my soul, it will be because what I decided to do and to be, not because I was just born. But David, in his guilt, feels like, God, I don't even remember a day when I was good. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but have you ever felt that way? God, I can't even remember when everything was all right in my heart or in my mind. I don't remember getting through a day without being a doofus. David is saying, God, it's like I was born Lost. It's like I was born already sinful. I can't remember being right by you. Now, we could look at it objectively as a third party and say, well, David, you did a lot of good. You made mistakes and you made sinful mistakes in your life that were huge. But, David, it was never always bad. Sometimes people have to tell us the same thing, don't they? We feel as if there was no right time in our life sometimes. In that moment, when he felt that way, he went the right direction. He said, behold, and I think he's trying to draw a contrast here. 
He says, I feel like there was never a right moment in my life. But look at you, Lord. Verse 6, behold, you delight in truth. You care about what's, what's on the inside. You care about the heart. And that's where your focus is. And you teach me wisdom. Why? So I have a better heart. I'm horrible, God. But you have always cared about me and tried to make me better. And that's the thing we need to remember. God cares about you in your lostness, in your brokenness, in your sinfulness, and still wants to reach into your heart and make that right. And David knows that, or he wouldn't be wasting his time appealing to a God without mercy. This next section is long. It's verses 7 to 12. And there are a lot of verbs. So I just put up the verbs there for you, okay? And look at what he says. He says, purge. Just get rid of anything in me that is not right. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You see his focus? God, we've got to get rid of it. We've got to deal with this. This is the second time he said, blot out my iniquities. He's really aware of the deepness of the stain and the only one who can cleanse it. In Acts 3:19, the same phrase is used by Peter when he calls Peter or calls people to repentance. And he says that they should repent and turn back their hearts to God, that their sins will be, depending on your translation, washed away or blotted out. It's the same phrase. I wonder why. Peter identified with David too, and he speaks to the people of Israel and says, there is a way back. It's through Jesus. There's a way back. It's through God's mercy. And He can, when we repent and when we turn our heart back to God as David is doing this psalm, He can and He will blot out our iniquities too. He goes on. He says, cast me not away from Your presence. Well, actually, I'm back up to ten. Create in me a clean heart, O God. We sing this. There's like four different versions of these few verses as songs. And we know all four of them, I think. Uh, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you ever just feel not right? And you know it's because? Uh, years ago, I noticed that there's, there's times where I struggle with certain things and with just mood. You know, not necessarily right and wrong, but moodiness around certain things. And sometimes that's, you know, James could really use bacon or something. Uh, but other times, that's because, and it won't even be related, it'll be because I know I've done something, said something, thought something wrong, and the guilt of that affects everything else I do that day, even when I'm not even thinking about it. Have you been there? Because you just you don't have a right heart at that moment. You're not in the right spirit and you're not coming from the right place and it's just all going wrong and you're just making it worse and worse and worse. And it's like, what is wrong with me? Need to repent. Need to confess. Need God to cleanse your heart and create a new one within you. And He has promised that He will. That is the new covenant promise that God creates in us. A new heart through God, or through Christ, and through the Holy Spirit, which David is really scared he will lose. You should be way more afraid of losing the Holy Spirit in your life than of the air conditioner not working, the stove breaking, or your car dying, or the house burning down, or even a person you love passing. 
David gets that. God, please. Anything but that. Not your spirit. I remember being a teenager, fairly young Christian, been a Christian probably four or five years, and youth minister was doing a lesson on this psalm. And he focused a lot on the Holy Spirit in this passage, which was amazing because it was the 80s and that didn't happen very often in a church of Christ. But uh, he focused on David's fear of losing the Holy Spirit. And that has always jumped out at me since then in this psalm that this was one of his greatest fears. Because the Spirit is God's presence and blessing in your life. It is your peace. He is your comfort and your strength. To lose the Spirit would be to lose it all. and He, he understands that. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then he goes on. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it to you. You won't delight, uh, won't be pleased with a burnt offering. Why? Those things were according to the law. That's what you're supposed to do. So why would he say, well, you're not going to be pleased with that? Because he's saying, it's not just, I can't just go burn an animal and make it right. I can't just go through the motions, Lord. I can't just go to church and stand and sing and pray and everything will be right. He says, God, I know this is a heart problem that's only solved heart ways. A broken spirit and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And that's where we have to be to really find mercy and grace. And then he changes gears altogether and starts praying for other people. It's kind of how you know you're getting through the tunnel, isn't it? Finally, you get to the other end of the darkness of that tunnel. You can see the light. You can start to feel the warmth of the sun on your face. And you start to say, you know, God, there's some other people I need to pray for too. And that's where he goes. Do good in Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem and then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. You know, he says, you know, this is still the right thing to do and we'll do it. But he said, God... Do good to Zion. And it's an interesting couple of phrases he uses here because he's appealing to the covenant that Israel has with God. When does God do good to Zion? When Zion believes, when Zion trusts, and when Zion obeys. When does He build up her walls and make her secure and at peace? Those who just went through the men's class in Nehemiah know when they've repented, when they've turned their hearts back to God, and when He has blotted out their transgressions. His call for Zion and Israel is in Jerusalem is ultimately a call for God, I repent. Forgive my brothers and sisters too. Bring us into a deeper faithfulness. Bring us into a place of rightness with You. And hold us fast. Make us secure. And bring us to peace. Because we're loving you, serving you, and trusting you. And he ends with that prayer for his people. I want to end with this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. It's kind of a, a, a blessing right in the middle of the letter. Let's see here. I keep overturning. I overturn to the left. I overturn to the right. Overturned. Like an airstream in a Texas thunderstorm. I'm just overturned. There we go. 
That's the King of the Hill reference for those who know. If you know, you know. This is verse 1, and it's 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. I tell you what, why don't you stand as I read this verse to you. <clears throat> then we'll sing our song. Obviously, if you need prayers, if we will pray for you and with you. If you need to put Christ on in baptism, we want to do that. Because we want everyone here to know what David knew at the end of his prayer. The cleansing and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God. Think about the promises that David is appealing to that he knows of God's steadfast love. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God.